Welcome to Prehistory. In this episode, we cover the early slave rebellions in Jamaica while it was under Britain's rule, including Kujo's rebellion. Since we'll be talking about slavery, who's ready to get angry? Let's set the backdrop to these early rebellions. From the moment Jamaica was claimed by the Spanish crown, the settlers relied on forced labor, first from the indigenous people who were decimated by European diseases and violence, and then Spain imported slaves from Africa to work on sugar plantations. When the British claimed the island in 1655, the left-behind slaves of the Spanish colonists fled to the mountains. The escaped slaves were called maroons from the Spanish word cimarron, meaning wild. While most of the indigenous people had died out by the time the English had arrived, some survivors resided in the interior of the island and may have mixed with early maroon communities. Now, 1960s Jamaica was dominated by the sugar plantation industry. Hog farming was also popular, but the wealthiest and largest plantations were dedicated to the sugar industry. There were approximately 200 planters between 1674 to 1701, with about half being small planters. The biggest seven planters had more than 100 slaves each. At least 60 were women and children. Thomas Sutton owned the largest and most profitable sugar plantation. He had 1,100 acres on either side of the Rio Minnow near St. Jago in Clarendon and owned 400 to 500 slaves. A great house where the master and his family lived was surrounded by a garden and sat on a rising ground some distance from the sugar works. Perfect for spying in luxury from a safe distance. Thomas Sutton had emigrated from Barbados during Modiford's governorship. Remember Modiford, who was the fall guy for Henry Morgan's attack on Panama? Also, I just found out the parish of St. Elizabeth was named in honor of his wife instead of... After, I don't know, St. Elizabeth in the Bible or Queen Elizabeth I. But you know what? Let's pin parish origins and their evolutions for a future episode. Nearby, the Great House was a dwelling house for the white indentured servants and a caretaker. In the early days, slave drivers were almost exclusively white. But by the late 17th century, trusted slaves were promoted to the role as the white labor force shrank. By the white dwelling house was a tidy arsenal, four small cannons, barrels of gunpowder, 50 firearms, including muskets and blunderbusses. Okay, what's a blunderbuss? Hold on. Blunderbuss. A short barreled large board gun with a flared muzzle used at a short range. Okay, I like the name. Definitely an old-looking gun. Cool. As for the slaves, the majority as for the slaves, the majority of newly purchased slaves would be field workers governed by the slave drivers. Newcomers were branded with their owner's seal, normally on the shoulder, and the wound was rubbed with palm oil to prevent infection. Gee, thanks, so thoughtful. About 14% of Sutton's slaves were domestics, women who washed, cleaned, cooked, and repaired clothes. They avoided the bat-breaking work of the cane fields, but were exposed more directly to the desires, cruelty, and culture of their masters. Field workers better retained their African traditions, while domestics acquired white cultural roots. 
Mulatto offspring between white masters or indentured servants and slaves were not rare. Indigenous slaves from the coast of Honduras and Nicaragua were prized for their fishing and hunting skills. They supplemented the diet of their white masters and indentured servants with their catch. The remainder of the slaves were non-workers, a mixture of new mothers, young children under six years old, and those too sick or too old to work. So, for Thomas Sutton, he only had six or seven whites working on his plantation, and about 500 slaves despite a 1689 law that stated owners should have one English servant for every nine Negro slaves or else pay a penalty. Mm, there was a reason for that law, Mr. Sutton. Big mistake. Slaves were commonly punished with flogging. Overseers often layered the pain of whipping by pickling the open wounds with salt and pepper. More serious lawbreakers like rebel slaves could be burnt to death or turn, torn apart by dogs. Repeat runaways were shackled with ankle weights or heavy collars designed to snag onto branches or they were hanged. White residents rarely felt sympathy. Slaves were considered property and punished so regularly and so publicly that compassion rarely surfaced. Still, slaves did resist in many forms. Suicide or sabotage was frequent and so was running away. Rebellion was an ever-present threat. Jamaica's forested blue mountains to the east and the canyons of the cockpit country to the west provided the perfect environment to hide maroon communities. Maroons remained in contact with these plantation slaves, bartering with them, encouraging them to join, and launching raids to capture weapons and young women to ensure their community's survival. Lobby's Rebellion was the first recorded rebellion in 1673. 200 Coromante slaves on Major Selby's plantation in St. Anne's Parish killed their master, some other whites, and seized arms and fled into the mountains between Clarendon and St. Elizabeth. They would go on later to form the Leeward Maroons. In 1676, there were defections from plantations in St. Mary. Martial law was declared in response and a permanent guard established in outlying districts. Two years later, there was a rebellion in Captain Edmund Duck's plantation near Spanish Town, when the river that separated the property from the city became impassable due to heavy rain, one loyal slave swam across to raise the alarm and troops came to the rescue. Some slaves were killed while some others were captured and subjected to violent executions to serve as an example. Captain Duck had been seriously injured in the rebellion and his wife was killed with other, with other whites. In 1685, 150 rebel slaves from Widow Gray's estate laid a siege on a neighboring plantation, but were forced to retreat deeper into the island once a militia arrived from Spanish Town. After several months of being hounded by bounty hunters, seven were killed in battle, including their leader, 30 were captured, and 50 surrendered. The rest managed to escape to the east of the island and merged with a shipload of Madagascan runaways. They came to be the Windward Maroons. Prior to 1700, the majority of Maroon leaders across the Americas that we know of were African-born, and many of them claimed to have been kings in their homeland, including Cujo. Revolts were typically carried out by recently arrived Africans before they, came, before they became institutionalized. Okay, so 
1690, let's talk about the most significant slave rebellion in 17th century Jamaica, which broke out on Thomas Sutton's plantation and was led by Kujo. All we know about Kujo is that he's Coromante based on his name. He led the rebellion and he fathered a son, Leto, also named Kujo. Thomas Sutton and his family had traveled to Port Royal or Spanish Town. Once they were out of the way, Kujo got the rebellion plans in motion. The rebels converged onto the dwelling house, killed the caretaker, and took hold of the arsenal. Kujo then led his people onto a neighboring estate, and that didn't stand a chance against the rebels. They set fire to the great house and killed the overseer. Kujo had hoped for an island-wide takeover, it seemed, but that hope would be short-lived. The newly freed slaves fled into the nearby woods despite Kujo's pleas to join them. Kujo's team returned to Sutton's plantation to prepare for the incoming militia. One squad took up defensive positions inside the fortified great house, and another loaded the cannon with nails. Many others waited on the side of the track leading to the great house so they could ambush the British forces. And the redcoats were coming. They advanced onto the great house and got into a small skirmish with the rebels, but was forced to retreat. By the next morning, August 1st, the militia regrouped and exchanged gunfire with the rebels in the great house. The rebels themselves were forced to retreat from the great house, setting fire to the cane fields as they went. After more exchange of gunfire and blows, several rebels were killed or wounded. Survivors fled into the mountains, leaving behind looted supplies and gunpowder. Bounty hunters and the military scoured the woods for fugitives throughout August. The rebels were not in a good position. They lacked provisions and medical supplies. Kuju allowed 60 women and children and 10 men to surrender. During the rest of the month, desperate survivors turned themselves in. At the end of August, 200 out of the 500 had been taken prisoner. The ringleaders were reportedly hanged. Kujo and the rest of the Coromanti runaways established themselves in the wild of the Coptic country. They merged with the remnants of previous rebellions like Lobby's Rebellion. They formed the nucleus of the group that would later become the Leeward Maroons. The survivors endured despite being harried and chased off by the militia and bounty hunters. They would pose more of a threat to the plantocracy than their windward maroon brothers. The leeward maroons combined their expertise of strict military discipline, traditional Akan law, and knowledge of medicinal plants and crops to sustain themselves. Other essentials like arms, ammunition, and women were captured in raids on St. Elizabeth and Westmoreland. The men formed a warrior caste. They hunted, fished, and communicated over a long distance with signal drums, conch shells, or cow horns, and a bang. Around 1700, one of Kujo's many wives gave birth to a son, also named Kujo, who would go on to eclipse his father in fame. Thomas Sutton died on November 15, 1710. He never fully recovered financially from Kujo's rebellion. At his death, he owned 47 slaves. What a difference from the 500 who fought for their freedom from his grip. Thanks for listening. Sources are in the show notes, but the book I found most useful was Apocalypse 1692 by Ben Hughes.